0: This is episode number 523 with Wes McKinney, creator of the Python Pandas Project, co creator of Apache Arrow, and CTO of Voltron Data. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best selling author on deep learning. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I am beside myself that we have the data legend himself, Wes McKinney, as our guest on this episode. Wes created the Pandas Project, an open source Python library that has become the global data science industry standard for working with data, and that is used within half a million other open source software projects on GitHub. More recently, he co-created Apache Arrow, another open source software library that is language agnostic and enables the execution of efficient data analytics on modern CPU and GPU hardware. On top of that, Wes authored two editions of an international best-selling book and now classic desk reference called Python for Data Analysis. He worked as a technical expert at some of the world's most prestigious companies, including Cloudera, RStudio, Two Sigma, and AQR. He now serves as co-founder and CTO of Voltron Data, a firm focused on accelerating the development and the impact of his open source Apache Arrow project. In today's episode, Wes takes us on a detailed technical deep dive through the creation story of his now ubiquitous Pandas library, the content of his iconic book and a sneak peek at the forthcoming edition, what the Apache Arrow project is and why it's posed to revolutionize the data science and software industries, perhaps even more so than Pandas has. And then he also talks about the software and hardware tools that he uses day to day to be such an epically productive software developer and entrepreneur. Today's episode will be of interest to anyone who wants to get deep into the mind of one of the most influential open-source software developers of our lifetime. Given his rich expertise, this is an especially technically dense episode, but both Wes and I did our best to break down concepts so that their rough shape and impact can be appreciated by anyone. All right, you ready for this incredible episode? Let's do it. Wes McKinney, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I can't believe you're here. I've been so excited uh, in the run-up to recording of this episode. How you doing, and where in the world are you calling in from today?
1: I'm good, thanks for, thanks for having me on the program. I'm, uh, I'm here at home in uh, Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee, where I moved uh, uh, about three years ago.
0: Nice, and you were in New York before, right, for quite a while?
1: Uh, off and on for quite a while. I, I, was in, I was in the Bay Area for a few years before that. But, but otherwise, I was in, in New York with um, a year in the middle. At, uh, um, I started a PhD at, at Duke in North Carolina uh, and then uh, dropped, out to, uh, dropped out to work on open source software.
0: Well, that seems to have been a good decision. And I suspect that the Nashville decision was probably a good one too. Would you say that like the weather is superior to San Francisco or New York?
1: Yeah, I mean it's definitely it's definitely hot in the you know hot 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 in the summer, but it's it's pretty temperate the rest of the year. Like right now, it's you know, right you know right now it's beautiful. Um, the web, the winters uh, are you know it does get cold. Maybe it snows once or twice, uh, but huh. the, the winters are pretty are pretty mild. Um, it rains a surprising amount
0: really um,
1: but but all in all I, all, in all it's uh you know it's great you have um, you know you have mountains you know in driving distance and uh, you know the city of Nashville is uh is, is is booming so I certainly didn't know about covid when I when I moved here <laughs> but uh, when when it when it hit I was happy to have like the uh, um you know the uh, the the extra space <laughs> in, uh, in in my apartment to yeah. uh, to to roam about
0: yeah. I can say from experience that being in Manhattan during a COVID pandemic is not the place you want to be, uh, finding my way through, if it's nice, things must be opening up. They're probably almost fully back to normal in Nashville now.
1: Um, yeah, they, 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 they are, uh, they, they've been pretty much back to normal for, uh, for, for a long time. I, I guess it's, uh, you know, for it, it's funny, it seems like for, you know, some parts, um, you know, for, for some parts of, uh, of the state, you know, state of Tennessee, um, you know, there, you know, there wasn't really much of a, wasn't really much of a lockdown. Um, the city of Nashville itself did have, um, did, did have a closure of a uh, non-essential, non-essential businesses, uh, you know, indoor dining uh, for, for a period of time. But it, it opened up, uh, indoor dining reopened last, uh, last summer. Oh, uh, wow. summer 2020. Right. And, um, and they're, you know, I think even during the, um, you know, even during the, uh, the COVID peak around December, January, uh, things stayed, you know, things stayed open, but, uh, I was definitely, I was definitely happy to, uh, uh, you know, that, you know, cause I'm in a, I'm in a red state. I was able to get vaccinated, uh, right at the, <laughs> yeah, right the start, right at the start <laughs> of April. And so that, that brought down my yeah, you know, brought down my anxiety levels and and uh, so I've been you know comfortable resuming resuming travel and visiting yeah. re- visiting friends and family, and things like that
0: for our international listeners, Red state there means uh, that there's relatively conservative politics. And so it means that the the line, the cue to get a vaccine uh, was really short. Um, I did have to wait around here in New York in this blue state, as we say. Um, but all's well now. Um, yeah, so it seems like you definitely lucked out there with, with Nashville during the pandemic as, as far as luck goes in a situation like that. Um, so Wes, you were introduced to me by Jared Lander, who was on episode 501, but we also have some other connections. So some other recent guests, Claudia Perlick in episode 437, Drew Conway in 511. And with that group of people, I felt pretty confident that you had a lot of connections to the New York R community, also knowing that you uh, speak regularly at the New York R conference. So I asked you about that just before we started recording and discovered uh, that yes, indeed, unsurprisingly, you have been involved in the R community for a long time. But uh, that is not what you're most known for, I suppose. Um, So uh, amongst a lot of achievements, perhaps uh, you know. One of the achievements that uh, that you stand up for most is being the creator of the pandas library in Python, which uh, I'd love for you to dig into a bit of the history of how you got started with pandas. But um, I, I like the connection there between uh, kind of being involved with R so much a decade ago, um, in in kind of I suppose R's heyday in data science, and. So R had still has this data structure called the data frame that allows you to mix multiple different data types. So you don't have to have a matrix of just float values or integers. You can mix in character strings with uh, numbers. And so this is very helpful for working with data. And pandas that you created allows us to have that same kind of data frame functionality in Python and also quite a lot more. So I've given a long intro there. First of all, let me know what I got wrong. <laughs> and then let us know about, um, yeah, kind of the history of, of Pandas, why you created this library that is now one of the most widely used pieces of software in the entire world. Uh, and yeah, if there's any relationship to, to our data frames there. Sure,
1: there's there's a uh, there, there's a lot to unpack there, and, there, and there's certainly <laughs> there's certainly a lot of a lot of history. Um, I uh, uh, you know I, I studied uh, I, I got a I, did, I got a degree in pure math in, in college and did a dabbling of um, did a dabbling of computer science. Uh, I did you know I did more um, you know mathematical optimization, like the math side of computer science and, and electrical mm-hmm. engineering, than I did of actual programming and software engineering. Um, but I got a job in I got a job in quantitative finance at uh, AQR Capital management oh, at yeah the oppor- at the opportune moment of August 2007 right as the, uh, <laughs> right as <laughs> the no. financial crisis was uh, was beginning and I remember because my first day was on August 13th 2007 and the week before that was the, um, you know much studied quant equity crisis that really only it was like a a kind of uh, there was a hedge fund or something that failed the week of August sixth and it um, because a lot of the quant hedge funds used um, the same risk models mm-hmm. when they deal when they they sold off their portfolio, it caused these um, sort of correlated disruptions in portfolios where if you were a quant fund that used the same borrow risk model. Um, you would lose a lot of money because you were, because of the way that the op, the the mean variance optimization worked. And, um, but other uh, retail investors, uh, you would not see those same kinds of like, it wasn't like the, you know, the stock market went down 20%. It wasn't like black, uh, you know, black Tuesday or whatever, you know, whatever happened in 19, uh, 1987 Um, might've gotten the name of that wrong. Black (laughs) Monday, something like that, black something. Um, but uh, yeah, so, but anyway, I was there, I was there at AQR and um, I uh, had some colleagues that got me interested in, in Python, uh, the Python language. They had written some, some tools uh, to to, you know, to automate, uh, you know, certain, you know, certain business processes. And um, I, you know, really found the language, uh, you know, really attractive. And in our, in our job, we were doing a ton of Excel and a ton of SQL. And, uh, I found it, I, it just struck me how difficult it was to, it was to work with data. Um, so I started to be interested in, well, you know, maybe I could create some tools for myself to make it easier, uh, you know, make it easier to do my job and automate my job so that I can, you know, either work less or I can spend my free time working on other, you know, other things other than, you know, drudgery of data manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but indeed, at the same time, I had some colleagues that were um, users of R, and of course, R was hugely different in 2007, 2008. Now, so many of the things that we take for granted in R, like R Studio as a mm-hmm. development environment, um, tools like Dplyr, the tidyverse, like the whole pipe concept, uh, and many of the modern you know libraries that's made R such. You know, I would argue with you. You said. Yeah, the heyday of R was a decade ago. I think the heyday <laughs> no. of R is. I know the heyday of R is the heyday of R is right now. I think. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I've, I really got to, I tip my hat to the, you know, to the work of, of the R community and and what they've done to really build out um, a really you know amazing set of of libraries to empower empower uh, data science work. Um, but in any case, I I was exposed to R, and so when I initially started. Uh, writing the code that turned into pandas, which was in like April 2008, um, I had the you know positive and negative experiences I- experiences of using R, and so I was trying to um, capture some of what some of the good things about R data frames and that way of working with working with data and going about statistical modeling, running regressions, doing data manipulation, cleaning up data. Um, but adding a bunch of additional features that R did not have that were causing me a lot of pain and suffering. So we were we were working with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, irregular data that hadn't go th- gone through a lot of normalization and data and data cleansing. And so you would read two different tables from two different um, database tables in Microsoft SQL Server, and then you'd have this like data integration problem of how do we join and merge these merge these things together. And so I was hit by all manner of, um, d- you know, cascade of problems in R from, you know, string you know, strings as factors is equals true. And, um, you know, silently, you know, doing the wrong thing when merging data frames together. I mean, this was before, you know, this was before dplyr and, uh, and data table, mm-hmm. which do these, do these joins properly. Um, so I was, re- I felt really burned by that. And I said, you know, this shouldn't be so easy. So maybe we can build this, like, data integration, like data alignment logic, into the into the data frame data structure itself. And that's how that's how Pandas' is indexing, like row index and column index concepts came about. And so they provide this automatic data alignment feature, um, which is super useful if you have that problem. And now, now you know, 13, 14 years later, uh, people are cursing me for Um, having this, uh, you know, indexing feature in pandas that um, it can be a nuisance to people that don't need it. Uh, But to me at the time, it was super useful. Uh, And so I, I spent, I I spent uh, several years, I I spent a total of three years at, at AQR and worked really hard to uh, build a foundation of, of tools that would enable, uh, that that enabled, um, you know, AQR ultimately to transition to Python as a, Um, you know, quant modeling language and to build a lot of production systems that now um, are essential, you know, parts of how the the business operates. And, um, you know, that experience of of working, of working with my colleagues and building tools for them and, you know, just working to make everybody productive uh, is how I became passionate about working on uh, data analysis tools in the first place because I got to see firsthand the kinds of productivity gains that are possible when you go from tools that are, uh, that, you know, that are a nuisance to use, or that are cumbersome, or don't fit the problem that you're dealing with, and if you build the ideal tool that has the built-in features where people can think naturally about the what they're what they want to do with the data, rather than the the low-level mechanics of like, well, how do I get this to join properly, and how do mm-hmm. I deal with missing data, things like that. Um, so those were that was like the early days of pandas and and AQR graciously allowed me to uh, to open source pandas in um, in the middle kind of latter half of 2009, which uh, wasn't something that a lot of uh, financial firms were doing at the time. Like right. I think Jane Street was one um, company that was one of the early movers in um, open sourcing their their tools in the OCaml in the OCaml community. Mm-hmm. um but uh yeah hedge funds you know notoriously secretive so pandas was an anomaly in terms of open source at the time and i think that it helped uh um open the floodgates of more more financial firms releasing their internal tools uh with the hopes that they would become more widely adopted and 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 it would influence the you know python community or the programming community and uh, open source ecosystem in ways that are beneficial beneficial over time um yeah. but um yeah i did so so i never did i never did a lot of um r package i never did any r package development right, I never right, published right. um i've never published um personally an r package to cran um although you know lately we do have really active collaborations with the with the r community so the story about how i got connected with drew conway and and jerry lander was uh i moved i uh dropped out of grad school in 2011 um cuz i felt really Uh, passionately about uh, spending. I initially took leave and I said, well, I'll spend a year and just develop I had saved. um, I didn't have any college debt. So uh, that made that was an enormous privilege um, to not have, uh, you know, monthly debt payments. Mm -hmm. And um, I had saved uh, as a result of not having any college student loan debt and having lived uh, uh, frugally uh, while I was working in while I was working in finance, um, I had saved enough money such that um, I did the math and said, "Well, I can support myself living a pretty uh, bare bones lifestyle in in New York, and um, and I could spend a year working on pandas and see where and see what happens." Cool. And so during that time, I started attending meetups, and one of the active meetups at that time was the New York R meetup, mm-hmm. and uh, I talked to Drew Conway, and and he uh, you know saw that there was. Growing interest in Python, and he said, "Why don't we open up this meetup to more than just R?" And uh, at that time, Drew was getting busy with some other things, and um, I met Jared. And, and Drew said, "Hey, why don't you and Jared run the meetup?" So, um, uh, so Jared and I became the uh, organizers of the what was the New York R meetup, and became the New York Open Statistical Programming meetup. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we've all become all become friends and have known each other for for a long time now um, it in effect because Jared is a really good organizer and a, and really good at, at um, you know finding speakers and doing logistics and all that and ordering pizza in particular <laughs> yes Jared is ordering. Jared is the resident yeah. uh, pizza expert in the yeah uh, in the r community and the in the programming community in, in New York um, and so i mostly just had to show up to the show up to the meetups and Jared, Jared ended up doing almost all the work. Um, So I was grateful, (laughs) grateful for that. I I tried my best, but um, you know, meetup organization and uh, uh, planning events, not not my forte.
0: All right, well, you might be being too humble. Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters, those that provide a massive signal-to-noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, the Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pour over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are hand-picked. The items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized easy to read format and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article, You can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all that said if any items do particularly tickle your fancy then you can click through and read the full article this is what i do i skim the data science insider newsletter every week those items that are relevant to me i read the summary in full and if that signals to me that i should be digging into the full original piece for example to pour over figures equations code or experimental methodology I click through and dig deep. So if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science machine learning and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free, no strings attached, at superdatascience.com dsi. That's superdatascience.com d s i. And now, let's return to our amazing episode. Well, it's nice to hear that whole story. Uh, It's interesting, over the last few months, having had Jared and Drew and then now you on the program, I've been able to piece together for myself and for any listeners that have been listening to those episodes, again, Jared was 501 and Drew is 511, we're getting more and more vantage points on the history of what is such an influential community. It is uh, so that that community, what is now called, as you say, the Open Statistical Programming Meetup. It is. Uh, the world's largest um, community for these kinds of open source efforts like R and Python. And yeah, so it's interesting to hear where it all started and and meet the people that were involved in that. Um, and I, going back to the very beginning of when, it, when I started introducing, uh, you know, your work with pandas, I deeply regretted as soon as it came out of my mouth that I said R's heyday uh, was 10 years ago. Um and so I'm glad that you uh, caught me on that. It is absolutely, it's it's so interesting. I think, you know, you, you put your own life experience, you overlay that on like the real objective history that's out there. And for me, 10 years ago, I was using R every day. It was my bread and butter. And now Python is my bread and butter every day. So I kind of have this idea in my head that like, oh, that's how things have shifted. In the data science world, in general, but that's absolutely not true. R is still R is an absolutely massive ecosystem. It's bigger than ever, um, and yeah, all of these kinds of tools uh, that you mention, uh, the tidyverse that allows us to work with R, um, you know, a lot more easily, is, is brilliant. And and what the R yeah. Studio ecosystem has brought along.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just if you look at you know, yeah, ten years ago versus. Ten years ago versus now, I I don't know what the the difference in the number of you know, the number of um, data practitioners. I mean, the the whole field of data science has undergone a uh, an order of magnitude or more oh, uh, sure. growth, and um, and the the yeah, the market share of, of Python and R has, has you know has is largely it's largely dominated. Um, so yeah, it's um, I think a lot of a lot of the work that we've had to do has been how do how do we make these these ecosystems more hospitable uh, to millions to millions of users, and so we we went out of a period of time where you had to be um, you had to be a hardcore hacker to, to really be um, you know to really be successful uh, doing things uh, doing at least doing data work in in in, in Python, and so. You know we've so a lot of the systems that that have been built and tools that have been built is you know, how do we make um you know how do we uh you know have enable python to have as many users as excel has when you think about how many users excel has it's like right. the most it's the it, it is in essence excel is the most popular programming language in the world right if you look at it a certain way
0: yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's unfortunate you know you feel yeah you feel bad for all those excel users out there I think I think through things like you know these kinds of podcasts, I think people do realize more and more, especially as datasets get larger and larger, that there is this big opportunity to be moving away from tools like Excel um, you know towards maybe SQL can be kind of your gateway drug to something like R and Python. Uh, and Excel certainly or other spreadsheet tools like uh, Google Sheets, they certainly have there's they're hugely useful. And I do use, uh, spreadsheet software for a lot of uh, day-to-day tasks, but um, it's great that that people like you and places like AQR have been supporting this open source movement that has allowed things like the Python Pandas library to yeah, allow us to much more efficiently uh, be managing large data sets um, and be performing a lot of operations that wouldn't be possible in Excel. So on that note... If people aren't already very familiar with um, how to be using Python for data analysis, uh, you've written a book on that, which is a top selling, it's an absolute bestseller from O'Reilly. Um, it's Python for data analysis. If you're watching the video version, I've got my copy right here on camera, which is heavily dog-eared. Um, so a great reference book for uh, lots of functionality for working with data in Python. So it introduces working with Jupyter Notebooks, uh, back in 2012, IPython Notebooks, as I learned about them. Um, Which also actually, even that word Jupyter, it's interesting how it shows how uh, in data science it can be so useful to be uh, familiar with Python and R and maybe even Jupyter, such that they put all three of those words into one. Julia, Julia. Oh, did I I say Jupyter? Yeah, Julia. Uh, they put Jupiter into Jupiter. It was really, really clever. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Julia R and Python into Jupiter. Um, so you introduce, you know, working with Jupyter notebooks, working with NumPy, and then of course also working with Pandas. And in particular, you have chapters on working with time series data and financial data, which makes sense given your history um, in financial markets. And certainly a lot of people do work with those uh, kinds of data. And they can be some of the most difficult. To munge around with. So first edition came out in 2012, second edition was in 2017. And I understand that a third edition is in the works, Wes. Uh, and yeah. yeah have- I
1: am I am slowly uh I am slowly uh editing my way towards uh you know towards a third edition. Um I um, um since I, I I keep busy with a lot of other projects, so and the book is not my not my principal project like it was in, in 2000 and 2012, you know, I, you know, wrote the first version of the book during my, um, my, uh, one year, uh, self-funded, self-funded sabbatical. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so, uh, I expect that the third edition will, uh, will be out in 2000, uh, 2022, so next year. So that mark, you know, be about 10 years since the, First edition first edition came out and um, you know given that the book has become um, a, a mainstay in many and many classrooms university courses a uh, supplemental text uh, for for data science for data science courses that um, you know I think that it's important for me to continue to to maintain the book uh, to keep it up to date with uh, the latest and greatest improvements in in pandas to make sure that the code examples still work and that, um, you know, the other like things that, um, the things that bit rot over, over the years, um, like the way that we install and manage Python packages has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And, um, so, so that ha- those aspects have to be, have to be kept up to date, um, have to be kept up to date in the book. Um, so I, I hope to create uh, better digital resources for for readers of the book, uh, with this, with this third edition. And so, um, so look, look out you know, more for me on that in early, early 2022 when it gets closer to the publication date.
0: Nice, yeah, no doubt it will just continue edition over edition to become more and more of an absolutely essential resource for the data scientist that uses Python. And yes, so if people want to see the kind of early work on this third edition, if you have a subscription to the uh, O'Reilly Learning platform, then uh, some of the early chapters are already available for you to check out of that third edition from Wes. Um, All right, so we've talked about pandas in detail and about how people can be uh, getting started or getting uh, more deeply involved in using Python for data analysis. The next topic that I'd like to cover is
1: well, if I could, I mean, if I oh, could, yeah. if if you could, you know, pardon you know, pardon me for a <laughs> few minutes to uh for to, to talk a little bit about what has happened with uh with pandas in the last uh, oh, yeah. you know, eight or eight or nine years because I think one of the unfortunate things about about projects like pandas that take place over a long period of time is that often people really focus on the origin story of how the project started, but Um, a lot of people don't realize that I haven't been actively involved as a, as an individual maintainer in pandas since 2013. So it's been more than, it's been more than eight years now. Um, and so the, the project has, um, you know, has, has obviously flourished and become a ubiquitous, uh, tool that everybody, everybody uses and, um, that, that work of, uh, building out the project and sanding, you know, sanding the rough edges, building lots of new features, doing, you know, performance optimizations on all of the uh, all of the odd corners of the project, dealing with memory use problems, and adapting the library to suit the needs of uh, of the modern generation has been you know, has been carried out by an extremely passionate but also very small core team. Um, of, of developers whose, you know, whose names, you know, some people know because they're active in in Pandas development and they say, you know, who's reviewing my pull requests and who's uh, who's fixing all these bugs that I report. Um, but Pandas has had over, um, over 40,000, a total of, you know, between issues and pull requests um, are, you know, issue and pull request numbers in the GitHub project are over 40,000. Wow. So that's just an astronomical amount of work that's been, uh, you know, driven for for years and years by by Jeff Reback and uh, Brock Mendel, Jor, uh, Joris Vandenbosch, uh, Philip Salzberger, and uh, uh, you know we have a you know, really passionate uh, core team that continues to grow. And so um, I I, uh, um, I try to try to sing their praises uh, you know a, as often as I can because you know the the work of large open source projects their their community they they need a they require a community. Um, And, you know, pandas has, has grown a massive community and really active activist, um, you know, community that's been really active in recruiting new contributors, um, and making lowering the hurdle to, uh, to open source development. And so there's many, uh, really successful, you know, successful open source developers that one of their first pull requests they ever made their first open source contributions was to pandas because pandas has made itself, um, you know, easier to contribute, um, and uh, core maintainers like Mark Garcia have been organizing international documentation hackathons in you know, Latin America, for example, uh, to bring you know to bring uh, new um, you know new new uh, new people into the project, and so um, that's been just wonderful to see. And um, you know, many organizations have donated donated money to pandas uh, pandas development through uh, through NumFocus, which has enabled. Um, it's kind of, this kind of community development that's helped fund these events, um, has helped sponsor, uh, projects, um, you know, small projects. So here, you know, a thousand dollars here or 5,000 or $10,000 there really goes a long way in, um, in, uh, in, you know, enabling somebody to spend a month of their, of their time working on pandas rather than, uh, working on some other, um, you know, software, proprietary
0: software contract. I am so glad <laughs> that uh, that you fit in that uh, response. And uh, yeah, it's so important to mention you know how Pandas has evolved over the years. I'm glad that we didn't just skip ahead uh, to what you're working on now. And then maybe I should also open it up to say, you know what has changed over uh, over this last decade with Pandas itself. So you've highlighted how the incredible open source community uh, has enabled a lot of growth and change. And actually, it's super interesting to hear um, how a big successful open source project like this, like Pandas, goes in and out of being just purely in the digital realm, just on the internet. So uh, I often think of, and I'm sure many listeners often think of big open source projects as being uh, kind of like anonymous GitHub usernames and people just kind of, you know, slogging along, uh, you know, making progress online, but uh, it makes sense that such a successful open source project like Pandas uh, ends up going back and forth between the digital realm and the real world, uh, you know, having conferences where people can be together um, and having uh, real world communities uh, where kind of exchange and growth can happen. That sounds like a really big part of it. And so what kinds of things has, the open source pandas community been able to uh, develop or or hone about pandas over the years.
1: Well, I think the the I mean one of the biggest things is that is that pandas has become this um, this essential glue between uh, different types of uh, between different types of systems. So so many um, you know many um, downstream like pandas is if you look on GitHub pandas is used by over a half million. Other projects on GitHub is just a
0: wow, it's just a crazy, it's That's a crazy.
1: insane. It's a crazy. It's a crazy number, and um, pandas has also become a a computational building block that that other systems use. And so, uh, um, Dask, as a, a distributed computing platform for Python, distributed computing framework, um, has become you know really popular in recent years, becoming even more even more popular. Uh, particularly in, in enterprise use and pandas is a used as a computational uh, building block for for desk data frames distributed data frames uh, and pandas is being used in, in many other uh, contexts as a as an essential as an essential computing tool it's being used in spark it's being used in in other distributed uh, computing projects like uh, like Modin, which is built on top of uh, built on top of the ray project um, so it's been uh, it's just interesting that you know, pandas has become this essential essential infrastructure of the Python data science world, um, and uh, honestly, it you know my my main regret is that I didn't take any database systems courses in in college <laughs> because uh, I would have made uh, I think I would have made better software architecture and and design decisions in the early days of pandas, and I feel like you know now uh, um, you know a decade and 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 change later. Um, you know, I I am year year over year I'm I'm working on atoning for my atoning for my sins in the early days of of designing of designing pandas internals.
0: Well, it seems to be it seems to be doing well enough as it is. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I am sure there isn't that much of a gap. It's yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I know. I think that that um, the I think where I think where pandas. Um, you know, has struggled is, is at the, is at the extremes. And so if you, um, you know, if you're, if you never work with more than, if you never work with more than a gigabyte of data, um, you know, you never, you never have anything to worry about. And pandas is wonderful. And that, and that describes the the vast majority, the vast majority of users. Um, but, you know, the world is uh, collecting more and more data mm-hmm. and as everyone wants to program in Python. And so, if you, you know, your data keeps getting bigger, and if, if you're in a company that has tons and tons of data, um, what works well for one gigabyte doesn't work well for 100 gigabytes or, or a terabyte or more. And so the struggles that have been that have been faced at the extremes have been um, memory use challenges, performance challenges, like not, not uh, effectively, you know, utilizing um, utilizing the compute the compute hardware, um, and so so that's definitely created that's definitely created some tension. I mean, projects like like Dask have have alleviated um, you know, some of that tension by handling the uh, distributed computing with with pandas, um, but there's but there's still like um, you know quite quite a uh, there's a, a, quite a bit of systems um, challenges uh, for at scale computing. Um, with, with with Python, and um, so pandas' popularity is also it's a double edged sword because everybody wants to use pandas. They want they want the pandas API. Um, they want to take their code that runs on a small CSV file and run it on a massive distributed data right. set. And so that's that's def- definitely created attention in the ecosystem where, um, you know. We we want pan, like we want pandas, we want pandas to work for big data. Um, but it's it's easier, it's easier said than done. And so, you know, on one hand, so there's some there's some projects um, like koalas for spark, um, who or you know, modin for for and other, you know, both are different approaches to scale out computing in Python. Um, and um, you know, so those are projects that aim to clone the, the pandas API really closely. Whereas um, you know other projects have diverged, uh, have diverged from pandas. So I, I've um, you know been been working with um, some folks from, from the pandas community for the last you know five six years to build a project called Ibis, which is uh, deliberately uh, it's a it's a, a data frame framework for uh, for scale out processing. Um, you can run it on top of you know big, Google BigQuery and run on a petabyte of data or. Run it on top of many other, uh, you know, many other uh, data processing backends, and uh, but it deliberately is not pandas in its API, and it takes its um, the intention was, um, you know, to take the good, you know, some of the uh, ideas from pandas that make sense in a scale out computing context, um, while adding some of the the missing the missing features like um, high level expressions like um, uh, yeah essentially building uh, complex compute graphs like deferred execution graphs um, so having everything be lazy and not eagerly evaluated like pandas is so it's it's difficult it's hard to make everyone it's hard to make everybody happy uh, in a tool you know in a tool like pandas but you know I, th- I see the ecosystem moving in a productive moving in a productive direction um, and everybody earnestly wants Python to be the the uh, you know one of the principal data programming languages. Mm-hmm of the future.
0: Yeah, um, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about being open source is that it allows uh, other projects like Dask to branch off of what Pandas has already done. Um, and yeah, I'm sure Pandas uh, can, Pandas contributors can continue to uh, refine pieces that allow other tools like Dask or Spark to then uh, work very effectively. Um, Uh, And so, yeah, this constant evolution is very exciting. So part of uh, the solution to some of the problems that you've outlined here, things like um, being able to have efficient data analysis at very large scale, petabyte scale, um, or that kind of hundreds of gigabytes of of data that you mentioned there, um, handling not just flat data, but also hierarchical data. Uh, making the most of the compute resources that you have, be they CPUs or GPUs, um, those kinds of problems, it sounds like those could be resolved by another open source project that you've co-founded more recently, the Apache Arrow project. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Sure. Um, so so, uh, so the Arrow project arose, uh, Apache Arrow arose out of... Um, a, a bunch of different needs that that all percolated and uh, coalesced at, at the same time. So I think of it as a as an interdisciplinary collaboration between um, analytic database systems, big data computing frameworks, and and data science tools. Uh, so I came out I came out the this problem from the from the data science perspective, which is that um, you know having having worked for many years on having worked for many years on pandas one of the some of the biggest problems that we were dealing with um, is is very expensive to, uh, to load data into memory um, and then to uh, perform um, computations on all of the different kinds of data that we observe in the wild. So in particular uh, st- working on numeric data in pandas is pretty efficient but working on string data and non-numeric data is not. Um, and so data has gotten more and more complex. We see a lot of nested data, mm-hmm. um, you know, dictionaries and lists and, and things that, that arise from, from JSON and event data that's being generated by, you know, web, uh, you know, um, uh, Netflix, you know, basically mobile phones and websites and things like that, these complex mm-hmm. JSON events. And, um, and so, uh, you know pandas has either all the all the data that you're working with is in memory or it's all not in memory and so if you can't fit your problem into memory right. and all of the intermediate results then then you run out of memory and you aren't you know, you're having a bad time so so arrow for me was um, building from the ground up a compute a, a data and computing foundation that could sustain um, sustain the ecosystem for uh, for for the, for the coming the coming decades, and so um, so it starts with a um, standard way of representing uh, data frames and tabular data, um, where you can interact with data on disk in a way that's really low cost. So um, so so you know reading. So if you have a, a hundred gigabytes or half a terabyte of data on disk, and you need to read one small section of it, you can do that precisely and, and cheaply without having to scan through the whole. The whole data set. Right. Um, the the data structures deals with uh, strings and nested data as first class citizens, um, and so, um, so the goal was to make the operations, the analytics that you would do on strings and binary and nested data, um, as efficient for um, for the CPU or for the GPU um, as as numeric data. So you you wouldn't have the kinds of um, you know compute performance problems that we've experienced. Uh, experienced in pandas Um, and so we've built up over over the last five six years a stack of um, a stack of technologies uh, to use arrow in many different programming languages um, protocols for connecting together systems and programming languages and so now um, we can build these interoperable high performance analytics systems in many different programming languages from c++ to languages that can you know easily plug into C++ like Python and R. And so we have a really active collaboration, uh, you know, with the Python and R community and the Ruby community, um, on, you know, in this sort of kind of shared foundation of computing. Um, I gave a, t- a, a talk uh, four years ago at Jupiter, uh, Jupiter called, um, data science without borders. And so it speaks about this idea of building this really strong, um, shared, um, shared, uh, um, uh, shared runtime for for data science, like a common compute foundation, which can be used portably across Python and R, and hypothetically any programming language. You could use it in Java because we can build applications that uh, with Java and other programming languages that speak Arrow, and you don't have to uh, pay a high cost to move the data to and from to and from the JVM like we, we used to have to in the in in the past. Um, and so. It's, it's been a deep well, and, and we've created these, these toolboxes for creating analytics applications, data frame libraries, database systems, and, um, and we, you know, we, we're working towards a, an aero-connected world where systems can become increasingly um, aero-native, that they can work with very large data sets very efficiently, transport data between machines or between processes on the same machine, Without paying, um, you know, the, the high penalties that we saw in the past, um, and this is coming all at the right time. So there's a reason that Arrow happened, which is that people saw like disks getting a lot faster, network getting a lot faster, and they said, you know, my goodness, our hardware is uh, going to be starved for data. So problems that were I/O bound ten years ago um, are no longer I/O bound; they're compute bound. And so we have to make interacting with the data a lot more efficient um, for computing. Um, so a related trend there is that, um, computing hardware is becoming more sophisticated. So not only, mm-hmm. um, are, um, CPUs gaining, you know, new processing capabilities, um, you know, higher bandwidth, um, um, SIMD vectorization instructions, you know, on Intel hardware, ARM hardware, we're seeing uh V kind of new architecture for CPUs coming, coming in the future. But then we also have hardware accelerators, um, hardware acceleration with um, with GPUs, and mm-hmm. so GPUs have been put to work really effectively for machine learning and deep learning. Um, and that same revolution is coming for analytics as, w- as well. Um, and the the Rapids team at NVIDIA built uh, uh, an analytics uh, an analytics engine uh, on top of Arrow that runs on NVIDIA GPUs and and showed that. You can, if you like, I over uh, under my desk, I have a, an RTX 3090 uh, GPU, graciously donated by Nvidia with 10,000 cores, and I can use that 10,000 core GPU to process my data frame. So it's it's wonderful, and you know all the data all the data is Arrow, um, so that that's enabled this uh, uh, really interesting uh, evolution in, and at, at the systems level, but. Arrow is really a, a tool for other open source developers and project developers. So our goal is for Arrow to not be um, something that most average data scientists have to think about, but they just think about like, oh, how do I get access to my data? How do I express my, my data frame operation? So in R, you know, we've completely hidden the Arrow computing capabilities behind um, interfaces like um, like dplyr, kind of the Plier Tidyverse interface, yeah. and so that enables you to take code that's written for dplyr and use um, Arrow-based, um, you know, set reading, Parquet file reading, um, in-memory computing capabilities without having to rewrite your code, which is exactly what we want. Right. Um, and we're working to enable that that same kind of um, portability of compute in in Python as well through the uh, through the Ibis project, um, and we'll be working with the Pandas community to help retrofit um, Pandas with uh, Arrow—you um, uh, know—improved uh, Arrow-based processing and data representation uh, to enable Pandas to become faster and more scalable. We started with strings, and so Pandas in in, re- in a recent release um, got Arrow-based um, uh, string uh, a string extension type, which made string processing a lot faster and more memory efficient. So you can work with um, larger data sets that way without running out of memory and all your operations will run faster. Um, And uh, we expect that will continue to uh, extend to nested data and other kinds of gnarly data that that Pandas users have historically uh, historically struggled with. Um, And I mean, for me, the most exciting thing is, is because I've become a database nerd um, <laughs> since I, uh, have been learning about database systems and, you know, the 30, 40 years of analytic database development. But, um, now because Arrow is this cross-disciplinary project, like we get to collaborate with, um, we get to collaborate with, with, uh, database systems people. So like we've been working with, uh, the DuckDB project, um, at CWI in the, in the Netherlands, uh, when CWI has spawned, uh, you know, Monadb and, uh, um, a lot of, uh, database technology that's powering many of the systems like Redshift, uh, uh Snowflake, uh, you know, these are uh, people who passed through, you know, CWI and learned how to build, you know, learn how to build databases in the Netherlands. So, um, to be able to benefit from those types of collaborations, uh, is, is extraordinary, uh, because, you know, I think, I think database systems people in the past were disinterested in, um, in, in a certain sense with, uh, with data science tools, but as, you know, the world of data science and Python and R in particular have become so mainstream and so essential um, that now, uh, you know, now the challenge is how do we get the Python code running inside the database? How do we get the R code running inside the database? And so that's one of the really next interesting frontiers of, um, of analytical computing is, is uh, kind of bringing those worlds together and creating a, a productive developer experience.
0: That's so cool, Wes. Thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, It's mind-blowing to hear all of the different aspects that you have to think about and get right in order for a tool like Apache Arrow to be so effective. Uh, Database considerations, uh, hardware considerations, and uh, by the way that you speak about those areas, I can tell that we're just scratching the surface of what you know about it, um, and so it's cool to see that um, this project, you know, can can have the impact that it that it can, that it can allow us to be uh, to be running data science operations, data analytics operations across whatever hardware is available to us, be it CPUs or GPUs. And it's awesome that you're doing that in a language agnostic way. And so that it's as easy as using an RD plier call, a Python pandas call. Um, yeah. Cause
1: I, I mean, ultimately, I mean, Arrow is, is, is all, is, you know, is central. One of its central missions is how do we, how do we reduce, um, how do we improve performance, improve efficiency? Uh, you know, cause you think about it just in terms of like how much, how much carbon emissions are uh, you know, data <laughs> right. processing is causing and, and yeah. the growth of uh and the growth of data centers in the world, um, you know, we've we've got to you know we, we've got to accelerate. We've got to do more with do more with less. Um, um, you know, otherwise, you know, with, at the rate of the explosive amount of the explosion in data volumes, um, it, it can become a real problem in the future if uh, you know if we, we don't make uh, you know analytical computing um, you know orders of magnitude more more efficient than it is now. But obviously, we've made a lot of progress in the last ten years, but Um, you know, we have a long, we have a long way to go.
0: Yeah. Exponentially larger data sets. It's something like every 18 months, the amount of data on the planet doubles. And then model sizes are getting bigger, even faster than that. Mm. Uh, With our hundred billion weight natural language processing models. Um, yeah, we definitely need to be, to be making the most of the compute. I hadn't thought of the, the environmental social aspect there, which is also cool. So, all right. So, the Apache Arrow project—that's open source—but um, you're also CTO and founder of Voltron Data, which um, you're—you're going to have to explain this to me. So, how does how does this commercial uh, entity how does it interact with the open source entity? Uh, you know, there must be some revenue model, but um, it also probably in some way enables you to accelerate the impact of the Ap- Apache Arrow. Uh, project can have right. Yeah, um, so
1: so I'll give kind of the the quick you know quick origin story um, of of Ultron Data. Um, so I uh, helped start the Arrow project when I was at Cloudera, working with um, you know with a bunch of uh, um, Clouderans on the um, you know working on Impala, Kudu, and Spark. And we collaborated with people like uh, like Jacques Nadeau and Julian Ledem who were at Dremio. So we worked with people at HortonWorks, and it was really a cross, you know, kind of a, a multi-company collaboration, an open-source project collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, I left uh, I left Cloudera to uh, to join Two Sigma in New York because um, Two Two Sigma saw the um, you know saw that what the future looks like with with Arrow and was an in, and was a true believer, and they said you know come here and let's let's work on this together. And so we we worked and we added Arrow support to Spark and we uh, you know we made you know major contributions to growing the Arrow project. Um, and in two thousand eighteen, um, the, the uh, you know piling on into the Arrow project, like everyone was trying to hire me to you know work on some part of some part of Arrow. And I said, well, I can't work for you all. So why don't we why don't we forge um, a um, kind of an industry consortium? to develop, uh, to develop Apache Arrow. Uh, so that, and that was called Ursa Labs. Uh, yeah. it's primary, primary sponsor, um, was R studio. Um, R studio. Hey, right. we can't, we can't leave R out of, out of this, uh, <laughs> this, this, uh, data revolution. Um, and we, uh, so we had, you know, r- amazing sponsorship from two Sigma, uh, NVIDIA, uh, um, and, uh, Bloomberg and uh, a number of other uh, a number of other companies um, and so that enables that enabled us to really you know focus in and um, you know just and do community building and to to build build bridges and not and not walls um, and so after um, you know after uh, nearly five years of, of aero development um, you know we I, I started to see that um, to really unlock the value of um, um, to really unlock the value of Arrow in mainstream enterprise computing um, was going to take a massive investment of engineering, and it wasn't uh, wasn't something that we could do um, with uh, with a team of uh, six six open source developers in uh, in Ursa Labs. Um, and so, so we decided to uh, to spin out from from our studio. And, and launch Ursa Computing, and we raised a uh, we raised a venture round from uh, from Google Ventures and some other and some other investors. Um, and not not long after that, um, you know, we uh, uh, started to look. Um, um, I, I reconnected with the um, the GPU side of the ecosystem. So because all, while this was all going on, um, Josh Patterson uh, at, uh, at at Nvidia had had built uh, the Rapids organization um, and, you know, a large uh, 100-person team at NVIDIA working on GPU-powered analytics, machine learning, uh, you know, analytics, uh, uh, data processing, pre-processing on on CUDA. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she had shown, you know, the massive performance um, benefits uh, that are possible with with NVIDIA hardware um, and GPUs in general. For, for analytics, um, and it wasn't you know prior to that, it wasn't known whether um, GPUs could be used effectively for analytics, and so mm. you know Rapids proved that. Mm-hmm. Um, Blazing SQL, uh, a startup, had worked closely with um, with with the Rapids team at NVIDIA to uh, to prove out that that Rapids could be used as the basis of um, of SQL processing. So for for doing analytical analytical SQL. And proved out the the value of uh, the performance and uh, uh, cost savings, you know, reduced power consumption, reduced carbon emissions of uh, of using GPUs to do um, hard, you know heavy large scale uh, analytics workloads. Um, and so you know the idea struck us that we could um, you know we could put um you know we could bring all of uh, you know all of this expertise and and experience under um, under a single company and work to create, to be the, the definitive, uh, the definitive computing company for, uh, for our arrow native future. And so we, uh, so we, so we called that company, uh, so we're calling ourselves Voltron data. And, uh, uh, so we've been growing a, you know, growing a big team, uh, engineering team, um, to, uh, to, to work towards, uh, you know, that goal of, um, uh, an arrow native future, uh, especially in, a large scale, uh, especially in, in the enterprises, mm-hmm. uh, bringing about the unlocking the value of Arrow uh, in enterprise computing. Um, but a lot of what we're doing, and if you look at what you can see, our work on GitHub, um, the num- our number of uh, you know Arrow uh, contributors has been uh, has been ticking up uh, steadily over time. Um, you know more than uh, you know more than twenty five developers from Voltron Data have contributed to the recent. Uh, uh, Aero 6.0 release, which is about to come out. And so, you know, we're really investing, you know, serious time and money um, in growing the, growing the Aero project and hardening it as a, as a cornerstone uh, of the next generation of analytical computing. Uh, And so we see that as, as existential. And um, so that's, you know, that that's our, our primary, you know, our primary focus, uh, primary focus right now. so in terms of our, our, you know, our products and, uh, you know, what we offer, you know, what we offer to sell, um, and, uh, and, and since we're, since we are a startup and we have investors, um, who, you know, who will, um, uh, you know, uh, will return on their investment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we, we'll, we'll have more about our, our, our product, product offerings, uh, in the, uh, in the coming, in the coming months. So cool. And say, and- you know, in the next, no, I'm not, not, you know, I, I won't put a put a date on it, but uh, yeah, in the in the next six months, I, I, you can expect to you can expect to learn more. Um, but we do we we are hiring uh, very actively. We have uh, you know fifteen or so uh, open roles, mostly in um, and uh, systems engineering, C distributed systems, algorithms. In um, uh, we're also hiring um, o- um, open source support engineers because um, you know part of you know what we need to do is is provide a um, you know a, a backbone of, of support uh, for uh, production applications that are running on Arrow, and there's a lot of engineering that, that goes into making that making that possible. So that's uh, that's that's the lifeblood of um, these types of projects, um, and uh, so yeah, we're it's a very exciting mission. We're you know we uh, yeah uh, it's just a really thrilling feeling to be uh, to be a part of this and to know that. Uh, these systems have so much tangible impact on the day to day day to day lives yeah. of, uh, of data scientists.
0: Yeah, I bet. And as you were speaking about the origin of Voltron, it became really obvious to me that you know commercial opportunities from being involved in these kinds of major open source projects they're you know they're going to be kind of everywhere because if there's this open source project that can do things more computationally efficiently than ever before. There's going to be people who come around and say, um, you know, we have this particular use case. Can you adapt what you're doing for this use case? Um, and so there's consulting opportunities there, but it sounds like potentially yeah, projects in the works too.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, we look forward to, yeah, we look forward to uh, to rolling out, uh, you know, rolling out those pieces uh, as we're ready to, uh, as we're ready to share them. But, um, you know, just just based on, uh, you know, based on on uh, just on on the numbers, like you know, like I would say, the majority of, of the engineering work that we're doing is landing is landing in the uh, in the Arrow project. So uh, to be able to invest uh, you know substantial you know substantial resources you know millions of dollars in in R and D wow. the Arrow it's uh, yeah you know it's 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 the dream it's the dream of open source. So I see it as a as an immense privilege and opportunity uh, to do good for uh, to do good for the, the, uh, computing ecosystem. Um, and we, it is essential to us that we, um, a, that we build a, build a sustainable business so that we can continue to make these kinds of investments in, in open source infrastructure, um, and having uh, building a healthy community developer community. Um, so I think something you sometimes see that, um, you know, toxic patterns emerge uh, when when there are commercial entities working in in open source yeah. projects, and so you know we very are, are being very um, you know mindful about the um, you know the, the steps that we you know the steps that we take um, to um, uh, you know to engage and build and build community so that we uh, we are good stewards um, and are, are you know um, yeah building a building a, a a thriving thriving community that can get you know, 10 times bigger or 100 times bigger than it is now.
0: Yeah, and so no doubt, not only a great uh, honor and opportunity for you to be contributing uh, to the open source world like this, but also for anybody who gets to work uh, on, you know, the, the on the Apache Arrow project, whether that's a part of Voltron data or not. And so we'll be sure to include in the show notes, uh, the kind of career page for Voltron data. I know that you have uh, 17 uh, different job title Opening, so uh, even more jobs than that, available um, yeah. right now at the time of recording.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's it's interesting that that you know the, the work that we're doing is in um, you know there are almost a kind of entirely disjoint communities of of developers in the Arrow project working on very exciting you know very exciting technology. There's a really passionate. A group of a growing group of Rust developers building, um, you know, building uh, Rust uh, based uh, analytics, uh, analytical computing uh, in Arrow, and you know, I'm very excited about that also. And I think that the the future is going to include a lot of a, a lot of Rust, and so <laughs> um, there's just there's so much interesting stuff going on. Uh, there's Go development, there's Rust development, there's JavaScript development, so there's so many ways to be involved in this project, um, that are, you know, in, in a sense, uh, you know, w- working in parallel to the work that we're doing, but there, everything is, uh, um, these, these systems are all compatible with each other, which, uh, makes for very, you know, interesting, uh, um, interesting opportunities in the future to create, um, you know, heterogeneous, uh, language heterogeneous, um, applications and system architectures. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, too many. I try to, you know, I have to keep myself focused on just <laughs> problems at a time because I, I think about all these things and then I get really excited about all the possibilities and all the things that we could build. But you know, realistically, you know, there's only you know there's only so many you know uh, hard problems you can you can solve yourself. And, <laughs> yes, at, no doubt. And, uh, at, at one time,
0: yeah, you're taking on a lot of them, but yeah, at least some for the rest of us, Wes. Um, <laughs> but we haven't talked about the names. And one thing that caught me is Ursa Labs. Ursa is Latin for bear, I think. And pandas <laughs> kind of sounds like a bear. So I don't know. So we're, are, is there a, relation, a relationship there? Where did the panda's name come from? Um, and maybe the arrow name, maybe the Voltron name. If those are interesting stories, you don't need to tell us all of them, but maybe at least the panda's <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, well, the,
1: the, pandas, the panda's name came, um, you know, I was... Uh, um, you know, trying to, trying to create, um, uh, some, some name to capture, um, you know, Python data analysis, uh, or, um, you know, something, some, some, some concept like that. Uh, but I was also, I was also working with a lot of econometricians, uh, who were talking about panel data all the time. Uh, panel yeah. data is a certain kind of, is a certain kind of, uh, data set that gets collected in, in statistics and econometrics. And so, um, you know, in all of my, you know, writing down candidate names. Uh, um, I was like, I was like, oh, there's a panda living in there. Um, <laughs> so and somebody suggested, I can't remember who suggested making it plural. Like, oh, it's cuter if it's plural. And so <laughs> hence, hence, hence pandas. Um,
0: Great. Well, there you go. David Regalado, uh, who is uh, a co-founder at Data Engineering LATAM, uh, he was interested in uh, kind of the name history there. So we got that for him. Um, so I, I know from our chat just before we started recording that you might not be able to spend as much time uh, down in the weeds writing software yourself every day now. But uh, I know that you do still spend time on that. And certainly you have a big history in it. So do you have any particular uh, software tools or techniques that you highly recommend for listeners? I'm
1: still, you know, when I do development, and I'm doing less and less, you know, development these um, these days, since um, you know, I can be, you know, helpful and helpful to my team and, and to the uh, to the open source project uh, in 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 other ways, other than other than writing pull requests. Um, when I do do development, I'm pretty um, pretty old school, and tools I use, like I still um, um, still an Emacs user. Nice. Um, not it's not a very tricked out Emacs either. I sometimes <laughs> see people's like Vi or Emacs setups they have all these like fancy auto completion things, and and so I don't, I've never, uh, I've never managed to set up those those sorts of things, um, which probably means I'm not as productive as I could be. But you know, I I uh, I've, I've managed for for many years, um, and uh, yeah, I, I really uh, um, you know focus on. Uh, you know, interact, interactivity and uh, um, kind of exploratory, you know, performance testing and using, since we're doing more and more C++ these days, and so definitely use, um, you know, use Perf and GDB and other, um, you know, we're starting to use, um, we're starting to use things like open telemetry to, to make it easier to, uh, to collect performance, you know, performance data from more complex uh, data processing applications. Um, terms of staying organized, like, you know, I, I, uh, we use Jira in, in Arrow and people have strong feelings about, uh, Atlass- Atlassian products, but, um, I do like Jira for project management. We, uh, we're big fans of notion for, uh, for wiki and, um, you know, more lightweight project organization, project management, uh, knowledge and building a knowledge base for, for a team, particularly, you know, we're, you know, critically we're, we're a distributed company. We're, we're globally, we're globally distributed. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, many people in Latin America, Europe, uh, U S and Canada. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we're, you know, we want to hire the best and brightest, uh, all, you know, all around the world and selecting tools that facilitate asynchronous collaboration, uh, documents, you know, building documents, cl- collecting knowledge and, uh, building a written culture where people can uh, find out about things and, uh, you know, become less uh, dependent on uh, synchronous interactions. And, um, you, know, that we, you know, that we don't have people with all the knowledge, you know, uh, stored away in their heads and inaccessible to other people. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, so having a really strong, you know, just using tools like Notion has been really helpful in building that, um, you know, kind of knowledge creation, like written culture.
0: Cool, another tool that we mentioned just before we started recording that I had to look up when we were talking about it, I hadn't even heard of it, this is a hardware tool that seems like it could come in handy for a lot of listeners, is something called Remarkable 2. So I was lamenting to you before the show, there we got it up on video, Wes has it up uh, in the video version. Uh, I was lamenting not being able to whiteboard with my team in person and how in the last couple of weeks, I've been able to get in person with my with my team again in New York, and I was saying it's awesome. We get in front of a whiteboard, and we're able to talk about ideas in a way that I felt we couldn't as effectively um, completely remote. But your remarkable two notepad seems to be doing the trick.
1: Yeah, well, I, I've always I've always liked uh, pen and paper, and and uh, it helps me it helps me think to to write you know to write things down and and take notes. Um, and, um, but I was burning through a lot of notebooks and, <laughs> um, and then you end up with the stack of notebooks, so like, well, you know, we should just throw these away. And so, uh, so my, yeah, I, I love my, uh, uh, my remarkable and it's replaced my paper notebooks. Um, and recently you can, you can use it as a digital, uh, like you can share, um, you, you can share your, um, um cause it's a, ta- it's an e-paper, e-ink, uh, tablet, and you can write on it with a. With a, with a with a pen. Uh, it's a pen that's a special pen. <laughs> and um, But you can share the, what you're writing. So you could um, have a document that's like your scratch pad or your whiteboard. And so um, versus like some of the other um, like pen tablets, like the Wacom tablets and things like that, where you have to like, you know, you're doing one thing with your hand and looking at the screen right. and saying, where is, where, is my, you know, where is my hand? Like you can, you know, f- you can think like I'm writing on a piece of paper. And so that's what working on a remarkable feels like. Um, And then who who you're talking to could be, you know, on the other side of the world uh, can see what you're uh, see, what you're writing on your, your, um, your digital whiteboard. So uh, that's been a helpful, helpful tool.
0: I love that. I'm definitely going to check it out. I do everything with uh, my iPad, which doesn't have the same mechanics and I miss that about notebooks. I had the same situation. I was like, this is absurd how many notebooks I have. And then also you don't always know what situation you're going to need one of the notebooks in. So, you know, I have, I try to keep them. I tried historically to keep them organized by subject, but then I'm in the office and I need a notebook from home and I don't have it. (laughs) Uh, So very cool tool. I'm going to have to check that out. All right, Wes, thank you so much for taking so much time with us today. Such rich uh, answers to uh, to all the content, all the topics that we've had so far. I've got a handful of great audience questions for you here. We've got one from Daniel Capitan. Uh, so he is wondering, uh, will pandas ever support nested columns like Parquet, BigQuery, and other engines do? And it sounds like uh, I mean, not what it sounds like that is something that you've explicitly mentioned the Apache Arrow project handles. Um, but maybe that's something that uh, Pandas might have in its future as well.
1: yeah, i don't I don't know where it falls on on the pandas roadmap right now, but but um we you know we have the um, we have the uh, the data structures and and the tools that are needed to represent and process and efficiently process. Uh, the net kind of nested data that you see in Parquet files, or that you can you can process in um, in, in SQL systems like like BigQuery, and so what's what's needed there is to develop um, an extension type for Pandas that is a like a struct type or a an array type, um, and so and I I guess that there's already some issues in the you know um, vol- voluminous um, <laughs> Pandas backlog um about that so if you're if you're you're interested in that um you know there that's that's a, a an avenue to get involved in in yeah. pandas um and if uh you know you're at a an, at a company that needs that capability um that's also the kind of uh project that you could you could potentially fund in pandas through by donating money to numfocus
0: there you go daniel so either you or your company or maybe some listener can pick up the slack on that particular problem. Go for it. Um, We've got one here from Doug Eisenstein, who is a financial technology data expert. Uh, We also had him as a guest on the show earlier this year. I don't have the uh, episode number to hand, but easy to find. Um, So Doug is wondering, Wes, uh, where you see the Rust ecosystem a few years from now? He says five years from now.
1: Yeah, I, I I do know Doug. I haven't I haven't seen or talked to Doug in years. Oh, but, no, no uh, way. Thanks the, yeah, thanks for the
0: ah, cool. thanks for
1: the question. Um, I I I do think that that Rust um Rust will play uh, an increasingly important role as a um as as a systems language in in distributed systems and also in um streaming streaming data and distributed data processing. Um, so if you look at the work that's happening in Arrow, like it's it's already happening now, and so what we're seeing right now in the Rust Arrow project, um, Data Fusion, which is a, an, anal- uh, an analytic query engine for Arrow built in Rust, um, is that already the, the early adopters are already there. They're building systems in Rust uh, for for doing for doing data processing, um, and so I think that that um, it, I think that it will become more. Uh, more mainstream and increasingly replace uh, increasingly replace um, you know, use uh, things that people would use in the past like um, I think I think Scala will lose market share to rust, for example. Um, I mean rust is still you know has it, it has a learning curve and I've, I've never written any rust code, but my understanding is that it's uh, it's not exactly a walk in the park but uh, when once you do learn rust it, it has you know uh, you know wonderful properties around, you know, the idea of fearless concurrency, uh, memory safety. So, um, you know, providing some of the, um, you know, some of the same, same kinds of benefits that you see in Go, for example. Um, but uh, um, yeah, so, so very, very excited about that and, and definitely bullish on, I'm definitely bullish on Rust.
0: Super cool, thank you for that answer, Wes. And then one last one here. Uh, so this is from Brett Tully. Uh, with whom I I did a PhD um, in Oxford. So he's an Australian. He's worked on all kinds of exciting uh, projects. Uh, He's worked on uh, Fusion Power, uh, and now he's the director of AI output systems for Nearmap, one of Australia's biggest tech companies. Um, And he has a question that is, uh, I'm super interested in challenges of supporting Python packages with compiled binaries, and where Wes sees the community moving for this, for example, TensorFlow is notoriously bad for Conda. Uh,
1: I would say I don't have a, I don't have great answers, uh, except that I am also I am also <laughs> concerned about our you know our growing um, um, DLL, D- DLL hell in in Python and um, the, the de- dependency, binary dependency management with, with Python wheels, um, there's, it's definitely, you know, possible to create, um, you know, cause some packages go the route of being completely self-contained. And so, you know, in the fullness of time, you know, you'll, you'll, there are packages which, um, ship, um, a static version, like a fixed version of Arrow. And so, if you load that package and you load an incompatible version uh, of PyArrow, um, that will not work. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so these problems are already happening. Um, Conda, um, you know, Conda by making everything you know a shared library and, and having a, a you know a dependency um, dependency uh, you know dependency management resolution. Um, is uh, is is the you know the clear way around this so that each project is you know, using the same version, um, the same the same uh, shared library, but um, yeah, but not not everyone is uh, not everyone is playing well with with Conda, and so um, I hope that th- I hope that they do, um, and you know Conda is not not perfect by any means, but we have a, a you know really passionate um, you know uh, developer community um, building Conda Forge. Um, pro- providing, you know, open packaging infrastructure for, for Conda so that, um, you know, we aren't so so that, you know, obviously Anaconda, the company has provided an extraordinary uh, service to the community over the last 10 years and not only building Conda, but providing the package hosting infrastructure for Conda, Anaconda.org and, and so forth and in the Anaconda distribution itself. Um, but, uh, you know, to really um, you know, it, it depends on the community of maintainers as well. Um, so um, so I don't have all the answers, but I, I do worry about it. And I, I hope that uh, TensorFlow and other projects um, will become better conda citizens in the future.
0: Nice. Another project for uh, some open source gladiators to get on top of. Um, Brett, we're counting on you. Um, all right, then, Wes. And then do you have a book recommendation for us by chance?
1: Oh, I, I, uh, I, this year I read, I read A World Without Email by, um, by Cal Newport. And, um, you know, since we live in, a, in an age of information and notification um, overload, I think um, optimizing ourselves as humans and how we interact with others, how we communicate with others and how we organize our work, um, I think, is one of the principal challenges of our generation. And um, I think that book has some good, um, has some good ideas. It doesn't uh, say, it. it isn't uh, about getting rid of email, but but using tools like email or other notification, project management tools in a way that is better for your brain and where you can be less stressed and more and more productive.
0: Yeah, uh, Cam Newport, that guy writes books more quickly than I can read them. It's yeah. crazy. I didn't even, I didn't know about that book. I've got like, I'm like a piling up a stack of Cam Newport books. Deep Work is one that I have read. And then now you just keep piling on more and more of them that I feel like I need to read so I can figure out how to be more efficient and have more time to read his books. (laughs) Um, All right. Thank you so much, Wes. It's been absolutely amazing having you on the show. You're such a rich resource for understanding um, the Pandas project, the Aero project, the opportunities that exist in the open source community and development worlds, what the future of data analytics could look like, how we can be leveraging hardware more effectively in the future? Uh, clearly, a lot of listeners will want to be able to get more information from you. How should they follow you?
1: Um, I think you know, following follow me on Twitter. Um, that's uh, you know, any information I put out is usually usually there. Uh, sometimes I um, sometimes I post things on on LinkedIn, but <laughs> um, generally the yeah, Twitter is the uh, authoritative like uh, source of you know, source of information, but don't be surprised if I go a few months without tweeting.
0: <laughs> yep, yeah, I mean, you've got to stay focused on the important work and Twitter is usually not it. All right, Wes, thank you so much for being on the program and hopefully we'll have the opportunity to have you on again in the future. Awesome. Thank you. Wow, Wes is a rock star that did not disappoint He has endless relevant detail to dig into on any topic that came up and he communicates that detail remarkably clearly. Specifically in today's episode, Wes covered how Pandas was born from his desire to more easily join data. He talked about the release of the third edition of his Python for Data Analysis book, which is expected next year, but can already be accessed as rough drafts via O'Reilly. He talked about the Apache Arrow project that he's evolved alongside hardware and database analytics advances to efficiently handle datasets that are larger than can fit into the memory of a single machine. And he had lots of really cool tools to tell us about, including Emacs, C++ Perf, the GDB Debugger, OpenTelemetry, Notion for project management, and the Remarkable 2 digital notepad. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials or tools mentioned on the show, the URLs for Wes's Twitter profile, as well as my own social media profiles at www.superdatascience.com 523. That's www.superdatascience.com 523. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. All right. Many thanks to Ivana, Mario, Jaime, JP, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another extraordinary episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.